5 p.m. You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And we are back. It's The Punch Out, 5 p.m., 11-11-2020. Not sure if there's any significance to all those numbers being in a line. I guess in the United States, it is Veterans Day. So if you have the day off, thanks for joining us here on The Punch Out. And thanks to everyone for being with us here on The Punch Out. On today's show, we've got U.S. hypocrisy in Hong Kong. Surprise, surprise. The governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, wants to shoot protesters. Yeah, you heard me right. We're going to get to that. But before we get to any of those stories, we start first with election analysis part two. The Empire Strikes Back. End this nightmare of poverty, hunger, and death for your people. Let your people go. Set your country free. Now is the time for all Venezuelan patriots to act together as one united people. Well, yes, that was President Donald Trump, but I have to say for the first little bit of that, I thought he was talking about the United States, not Venezuela. But I guess that's the irony or the hypocrisy or the ridiculousness or the outrageousness or whatever you want to say of the way the United States has been attacking countries like Venezuela around not having enough democracy. When you look exactly at what's happening right here in the United States, Georgia, for instance, going into a hand recount of all ballots, primarily because Donald Trump and a few of his Republican cronies are doing everything possible from voter suppression before the election to fake claims of voter fraud after the election to try to find some way to stay the election. So quite a uh, turn of affairs there, as it were, in terms of the U.S. vis-a-vis how they claim to be a shining city on the hill, a great democracy and all that other mumbo jumbo. But what I really want to talk about is not that, even though America is hypocritical and we'll come back around to some of how that democracy hypocrisy, ooh, see what I did there, plays out. I wanted to continue our discussion from Monday, dear listeners, where we threw out some election numbers for you there, making a preliminary analysis of some of the election results that, suffice it to say, did not really support some of the narratives being thrown around in the mainstream media. I've continued to look at some of the information, the numbers, the data that are out there, and I have to say most of those conclusions from Monday Monday, which were preliminary, of course, are continuing to be confirmed, and there's a lot to it here, but I just want to mention a few aspects of it. Now, one major piece of what I said on Monday is how notable it is that Democrats got fewer votes in cities like Detroit or Philadelphia in 2020 than in 2016. Fewer votes for Biden than for Hillary Clinton. Notably, Trump increased his vote in Philadelphia by 20%, just an aside, but notable. Now, I also mentioned how in Michigan it was very clear that the suburban surge was very real, if not the whole story, and the same can be said with greater force regarding Philadelphia and Pennsylvania in general. In Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, and the Philadelphia suburbs, by the way, 51st wealthiest county in the country by Biden gained four percentage points on where Hillary was in 2016, just about the same in Bucks County. In Chester County, another suburban Philadelphia county, Biden increased the Democratic vote by a total of six percentage points. So as much as some are trying to deny it, in at least some places, clearly this whole suburban surge and this, you know, upper middle class, whatever you want to call it, base of people play a big role in Joe Biden's winning coalition. Now, swinging back around to the black vote, where we were also talking about some interesting trends here, one of the main ones, of course, 
being the decreased vote, like I mentioned in Detroit and Philadelphia and other places. I continue to look at that. So here's something that's interesting for you. In majority black counties of North Carolina, every single county of the majority black counties in North Carolina saw a decrease in votes from what Hillary Clinton got in 2016. In Alabama's majority black counties, seven out of nine either saw decreased vote totals or no real change, including, by the way, Dallas County. That's where Selma is. Now, Georgia, as I'd mentioned before, different situation. Eight out of 11 majority black counties saw an increase in votes. Rockdale County, for instance, saw an eight-point jump. DeKalb County in the Atlanta suburbs, 3% jump. Bibb County, that's where Macon is. Shout out to Macon, Georgia also saw a 3% jump there. Now, interestingly enough, though, the majority white counties in the Atlanta suburbs also saw a big surge, so-called suburban surge. For those who may be interested, also, Baltimore City, interestingly enough, also saw an increased vote from 2016. Now, it's tough to parse this fully, but I think the point I was making on Monday still holds. There is clearly a deep level of dissatisfaction among black working class people with the Democratic Party. The fact that Joe Biden got fewer votes than Hillary Clinton in Detroit, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, the south side of Chicago, plus the black belt counties of Alabama and North Carolina is a powerful statement of disillusionment. So my main point really is to avoid the triumphalism that's going on of the country being quote unquote saved by black voters, which is just writing out of history, millions of black people, mostly working class, who stayed home. And again, as I mentioned on Monday, for relatively understandable reasons. You just look at uh, Alabama, which I mentioned there, you know, a major, the congresswoman for a lot of that area, Terry Sewell, was at the DNC. She was a uh, surrogate for Joe Biden. She opposed a $15 an hour minimum wage bill last year in Congress. So no surprise maybe that in Alabama, they're not that excited about the prospects of a Biden administration. Now, I also just want to quickly jump here to some of the issues I raised about the white working class vote. And I believe, again, the general point about how this issue is being deeply misunderstood continues to hold. Take Maine, for instance, state of Maine. Basically, all white people, sorry to non-white people in Maine, but you know what it is. 65% of voters in Maine had a household income, a household income of less than $75,000. Joe Biden won the majority of those votes. He also won the majority of white women without a high school degree. So by two of the skewed metrics that the U.S. political system uh, uses to determine quote-unquote class in elections, clearly the white working class played a big role in Biden's victory. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't find exit polls from Massachusetts or New Hampshire, but to be fair, it seems like it's probably relatively similar. I mean, just looking at Massachusetts, for instance, seems strange that Biden would win a large majority of the basically all-white or heavily white Franklin County, which has plenty of working class people in Massachusetts, if he was not in fact, getting votes from the white working class. So I think as it concerns certainly Vermont, also New Hampshire, when you extrapolate from the national exit polls, I think that in New England more broadly, you can make a very clear point because since what Democrat could really win the presidency without Maine, Vermont, Massachusetts, and at least giving it a go in New Hampshire, none. So clearly in New England, the white working class played a big role in powering Joe Biden and the Democrats to an electoral college win, which again is what's important in the electoral college and why national exit polls can be misleading about this. But all this is really just to say that these complexities really matter. As I said on Monday, to construct a real coalition of working class people that could actually build transformative change in the country, we have to jettison these sexy, synthetic, easy to understand narratives for much more complicated ones like what I was just talking about so that we could help parse out how people are reacting to politics, to policy, to their lives, to the future, to really be able to build something out of the hundreds of millions of working class people who desperately need change. 
Law and Order. That was a big theme. Should have used the Law and Order theme song. Uh, <laughs> wow, that was probably terrible. Forgive me, listeners. Uh, Law and Order, big theme for Republicans during the election. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis was all over the campaign trail for President Trump, saying that he was going to amp up the laws designed to criminalize protests under the guise of keeping order. Now, yesterday, the Miami Herald was able to obtain a copy of a draft bill written by DeSantis and his people uh, about this issue, which they had been talking up, but now we have the actual text. And I'm I'm just going to let you know, this draft bill is completely outrageous. His proposal expands the state stand your ground law and to quote directly here from the Miami Herald, quote, the proposal would expand the list of forcible felonies under Florida's self-defense law to justify the use of force against people who engage in criminal mischief that results in the interruption or impairment of a business and looting, which the draft defines as a burglary within 500 feet of a violent or disorderly assembly. End quote. Also, by the way, there is no duty to retreat in this law. So at the end of the day, if you're at a protest, the cops declare it as disorderly. They throw out some tear gas. You run into a store for safety. The owner can just shoot you dead as a looter and face no consequences. They also don't really explain what interruption or impairment really means. So God knows what sort of vigilante action will come of that. Someone writing graffiti. I mean, who even really knows? Your mind can run wild. Either way, just a license to kill people who are protesting against police violence and police terrorism. But when you really look at it, DeSantis, as I said, was bringing this up on the campaign trail, close ally of Trump, and it seems that he's at least attempting with this draft bill to put into practice Trump's tweet from the height of the uprising. When the looting starts, the shooting starts. For more on this, Breakthrough News was able to catch up with cultural organizer and popular educator Sierra Taylor about some of the implications of this action. The proposal to extend the Stand Your Ground law shows the length that the wealthy property holders and corporate-backed politicians will go to to criminalize the poor working-class people who are in struggle right now. Now, one has to raise the question of why. Why now is DeSantis and his ilk choosing to focus attention on protecting property while so many people in Florida go hungry, houseless, and are senselessly dying of COVID-19? Now, don't get me wrong. I love Florida. I love my Floridians. I still think of myself as a Florida girl. But DeSantis is one of the reasons why people make fun of Florida man. He's one of the reasons why people refer to Florida as a sunny place with shady people. And he just doesn't deserve to represent anyone anywhere. Close out the punch out here today in China, where news out of Hong Kong's legislation, the LegCo, is hitting the front pages around the world. A decent proportion of opposition lawmakers have resigned from the LegCo en masse after a small coterie of lawmakers were barred from sitting in the legislative chamber after violating China's new national security laws that apply to Hong Kong. Now, the details of all this are a bit Byzantine, but this is more or less what it comes down to. Hong Kong is a part of China. It is governed by its own mini-constitution known as the Basic Law. The Basic Law lays out the parameters of the relations between Hong Kong and the central government. However, the final decision on how to interpret the law lies with the central government. Recently, the central government of China created a new law to govern national security issues, something that, by the way, the Basic Law says 
they must have in Hong Kong, but did not before. Clearly within the ambit of their authority, but pushing that authority a bit further than in the past, admittedly so. Now this upset many opposition lawmakers who support things like encouraging the United States and other countries to sanction China and supporting activities designed to separate Hong Kong from China and so on and so forth. So some of the LegCo lawmakers were banned from sitting because they had been participating and encouraging in this actions, meeting with various U.S. Uh, forces, trying to disrupt things and so on and so forth. Now much can be said about the actual situation in Hong Hong Kong, and there's a lot there, and I don't want to just gloss over it, but the real issue here is, why is this even news? I mean, realistically, Hong Kong's national security law isn't really that much different from laws like FARA in the United States and various other similar laws in countries around the world that they set up to guard against so-called subversion. Secondly, and maybe more importantly, many of the most praised U.S. allies, by the United States that is, have no democracy at all. So does the U.S. really care about democracy in Hong Kong? Do the Western media really care about democracy in Hong Kong? Why is this such a big issue? Clearly, it's not about democracy. The double standard is being employed here because it's all about making China look bad. The whole desire to, by the U.S. government, the U.K. government, and many others to use the tensions in Hong Kong to paint China as some sort of evil dictatorship is all about making sure that China China can be, and that people feel it must be, sanctioned, isolated, and demonized. It's part and parcel of a broader campaign to create a new Cold War-style situation to try to halt China's rise and continue total U.S. control over the entire planet. And from my point of view, most of the Western press is totally complicit with this because the entire approach they're taking to this in all these articles and all these newspapers and TV stations is exactly the type of stance that the State Department or the Foreign Office is taking, which is intensely hypocritical because because there is literally no other reason that, you know, certainly that any of these foreign forces would be that upset about this, because, of course, the United States more than happy to stay entirely silent as their allies do many anti-democratic things, as they themselves do many anti-democratic things. Just look at voter suppression, which we've been talking about quite a bit here at Breakthrough News. So at the end of the day, you're seeing all these stories about Hong Kong. Again, much more to it. I encourage you to look into it. Check out some of what we've done on Breakthrough News about it. But the most important thing about it is that it's not about democracy for the U.S. government, the Western government, the Western media. It's about imperialism. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 